The scripture reading this morning will be from Acts chapter 19, verse 32. This is happening during the riot at Ephesus. And speaking of the crowd that had gathered there, verse 32 says, Some therefore cried one thing and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I don't know much about raising Easter lilies either, but I know one of our two Easter lilies is named Luke. He blessed our lives because of the power and the influence of agape. He started out, by the way, as at 10 pounds. He's now 6'5", 280. I do not advise you put miracle Grow on them. <laughs> but what a wonderful blessing he has been to our lives. I want to keep you up to speed, if I may, just momentarily. I've been trying to present a lesson on Turn Your Eyes on Jesus on the first Sunday of each uh, month of this year, since, as you can see by looking at the walls, that's our theme for 2019. And we began that, I think, in January with a lesson entitled Follow Me. Jesus told his original potential disciples, come and follow me. He's still saying that to us today, 2,000 years later. The second lesson was entitled Understand Me, because Jesus did not require us or even expect us to follow him if we don't know who or why we're supposed to be walking in his footsteps. And then the third lesson, last month we talked about listen to me, how important it is that we use our ears, our hearing ability to listen to the words of Jesus so that we can know how he instructs us to live day by day. Today, it's kind of an unusual title, Crowd Me. We're not suggesting that you invade anyone's personal space. But I do want us to do a brief study, if we may, looking specifically at the Gospel of Mark, be turning, if you will, to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at how Jesus dealt with the crowds, how he reacted to the crowds, and how he maintained his compassion and always the consistency of his message in those crowds. There have been other places than just the Bible that have spoken about the power of a crowd. Charles Dickens in Pickwick Papers, pictures the power of a crowd with this brief conversation between two men. Man number one says it's always best on these occasions to do what the mob does. But suppose there are two mobs, suggested Mr. Snodgrass. Mr. Pickwick replies, then shout with the, la- with the largest. And that's pretty much what the people did in our text. The Bible says in verse 32 that Eric just read, that the people were there, that they were in that mob, that... Uh, There was a great deal of contention over the false goddess Diana and so on. And and these gospel preachers came along and began to preach Jesus. So there was a great deal of unrest, conflict, friction going on at that time. But I think it's telling that the mob rule is described in verse 32 that the way it is by Dr. Luke by inspiration. Some didn't know why they were there. One group was shouting one thing, the other group was shouting another, but many of the people were there had no idea why they were there or why they were shouting what they were shouting. You see, because when you're in a mob like that, uh, all sense and reason disappears. So whether it's a pep rally or a revival or a demonstration on the courthouse steps or even a lynch mob, the morality of an individual can easily be influenced by the power of a crowd. I think our text demonstrates that in a powerful way. Sociologist Gustave Le Bon, in his classic work entitled Appropriately the Crowd, describes how a crowd can manipulate an individual. Here's what he says. Isolated, a man may be a cultivated individual, but in a crowd, he's a barbarian. 
An individual in a crowd is like a grain of sand amidst other grains of sand which the wind stirs up at will. I think that's pretty accurate in the description of the power and the influence of a crowd. So let's turn to scripture. The term crowd appears almost exclusively in the gospel accounts. Jesus constantly, as you well know, encountered groups of people. You'll find much of the four gospel accounts dealing with Jesus in a crowd, how he dealt with the crowds, what he said when he was with those people. He taught them in synagogues. Sometimes he taught them at the lakeside. Sometimes he taught them in open fields. And often he was found feeding them. I remember on one occasion there was 5,000 Jews that he fed. On another occasion, there was 4,000 Gentiles that he fed miraculously. And then there were the healings that he performed when he was among the people, the blind, the lame, the diseased. And the Bible says when, when word got out that Jesus had that healing ability, for obvious reasons, the crowd began to gather around him. And it's in the crowd that I think we see the consistency, the constancy of Jesus' character. No matter whether he was with one person or with 5,000 or 10,000 people, Jesus was always the same. And I think that's the major takeaway from this study this morning. Now, at first, it seems a little odd that while Jesus did not seek crowds, the crowds were always seeking him. Again, all you've got to do is just peruse Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see that that's so. And his individual style of ministry seemed to attract them. And yet, watch this carefully. He cared for individuals, and it is individuals primarily that he gave his time and attention to. And so early in the story, Jesus was constantly seeking individuals, trying to meet their needs, seeing what it was they needed most, and then to address that situation. Let me give you some examples. Mark 1, verse 6, he called Simon and Andrew. Mark 1, 19, it was James and John. He identified those men among other men. Mark one twenty three, a possessed man. Verse 30, same chapter, Simon's mother-in-law. Chapter 1, verse 40, a man with leprosy. Chapter 2, 3 through 5, a paralytic. In chapter 2, verse 14, a tax collector. And then a man with a shriveled hand in chapter 3 and verse 1. Again, isolating the needs of individuals, sometimes individuals within a larger crowd. But more and more. More and more, even as these individual incidents were occurring, the Bible says the crowds were beginning to gather. Listen to Mark one twenty-eight. News about Jesus spread. Verse 33, same chapter. The whole town gathered. Chapter 27, same chapter. Everyone looked for Jesus. Verse 45, people came from everywhere. Chapter 2, verse 2, there was no room left. And then chapter 2, verse 13, a large crowd came to Jesus. How many people were in that crowd? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I just know that the Bible says it was a large crowd. Notice the contrast. Today's religious leaders seem to play to the crowd. They're interested in mass communication. They're interested in having a mega church. They're interested in always being able to draw a crowd in order to be able to present their message. But Jesus did not do that. That was not his style. He was concerned about people, and his persistent search for individual needs and hurts was matched by the swelling of the crowds. Mark 3, 9 and 10, listen to what Mark records. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him. Here Jesus obviously had an escape plan in mind. 
So the crowds are beginning to throng him. And so he told his disciples, have this boat ready to keep the people from crowding him, is what the Bible says. For he had healed many so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Can you imagine how you would feel had you been in that situation? Now, usually the crowd moved as a single unit with its own personality and temperament. And Jesus had been successful in his dealing with the individuals. On one occasion, there was a guilty prostitute. On another occasion, there was an arrogant fisherman. On another occasion, there was an ostracized tax collector. Jesus always dealing with the individual, and he was more than happy to do that. He had won the hearts of many individuals. But crowds, crowds have no heart. They're notoriously unstable. They are volatile. They are constantly shifting. And with Jesus, they shifted through three stages. Notice those with me. Stage number one, they thought Jesus was amazing. Early in the gospel accounts, the crowds, I don't know any way to describe it. They stood in awe of Jesus. On occasion, the Bible even says that just listening to his words, they would go away full of awe at what he spoke and the authority, power with which he spoke it. He was incredible. They had never seen anything like him. And so they gathered around him, amazed at his teaching, mesmerized by his words, overcome by his compassion and by his honesty. Listen to this testimony of Scripture, again drawn only from the Gospel of Mark. The people were amazed at his teaching, chapter 122. The people were also amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority, verse 27 of the first chapter. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God. That's chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. And all the people were amazed, chapter 5, verse 20. And then she stood up and walked around and at this they were completely astonished, chapter 5, 42. And there's on and on, you could make that list almost infinitely long. The people were just amazed at what Jesus did, what he said, and the way he did it and said it. So number one, they, were, they, were, they thought Jesus was amazing. But then they moved into stage two when they thought that Jesus was useful. After a while, the crowds kind of got accustomed to Jesus. His service came to be expected. They wanted a performance each and every time that Jesus would come on the scene. Now for some, the awesome edge had, become, had began, begun to wear off. They were not so much amazed at Jesus, but here comes that Jesus fellow again. Jesus was becoming more useful than he was amazing. Let me give you some Bible for that. Chapter 5 of Mark, verses 27 and 28. She came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And then Luke chapter 17, verses 15 and then 17. One of them, when he, when he saw that he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. And Jesus said, we're not all ten cleansed, where are the nine? So he, nine out of ten lepers kind of took Jesus for granted. That's what he does. There's no real need to go back and actually express our gratitude to him because that's what he, he's come to do. That's his job. Seemed to have been their attitudes. Many of the people even found practical uses for Jesus' compassion. Sometimes he was good for a free meal. Jesus understood how that worked, by the way. The Bible tells us. For example, in John 6, verse 26, John records that Jesus said, You're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you you ate the loaves and you had your fill. 
In other words, you only came with one need in mind. You were hungry, and when you got fed, then that was all that you were looking for. You did not desire or want anything else. Others saw Jesus as a source of nationalistic power and change. You may remember that a crowd of 5,000 once wanted to use Jesus to, 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 to spearhead their political uprising. John 6.15 says this, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again into the hills by himself. He was not going to allow that. But they're thinking politically. Here's a man who has attracted a crowd. Here's a man who knows how to please the crowd, and we ought to make him king, and he'll certainly be able to, to lead us in the direction politically that we want to go. And Jesus said, There's, that's not what I've come to do. And then there were those who just wanted to see another trick pull from his seemingly bottomless bag of tricks. For example, in Mark 8, verses 11 and 12, the Pharisee came to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. Watch this. I think this is almost ironic. The Bible then says, he, Jesus, sighed deeply. That sigh was full of meaning, by the way. That's all they're looking for. They just want to see another trick. And so there were, there were lots of crowds. And each one of them was a conglomeration of shifting selfish interests. To be used by the crowds must have been frustrating, even for someone who had the patience of Jesus. But you notice m manipulation of him soon gave way to irritation with him. Disillusioned with Jesus, the crowds then shifted into stage three. First of all, they are amazed by him. Secondly, they've grown accustomed to him, and they're taking him for granted. They, uh, they're just using him, so to speak. And then stage three is where Jesus is actually in the way. You see, the seeds of hostility were planted very early, according to the gospel records. Even while the crowds were still amazed with Jesus, the Bible says the religious leaders were planning his elimination. We need to get rid of this guy. Mark 3, 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how that they might kill Jesus. You don't have to have a doctorate in Bible to understand that, do you? Their, their primary interest now is that we need to get rid of the religious competition. And so that conspiracy to do away with Jesus was really no surprise to Jesus. Jesus knew it was coming. He knew when to expect it and how it was going to come. He knew how that it would eventually end. And Mark does tell us how it does end. Mark 15 verses 11 beginning, the chief priest stirred up the crowd. There it is again, the crowd, to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What then shall I do with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them, crucify him, they answered. Now, why the crowd shifted from one stage to another, I think is an interesting spiritual and psychological study. But more interesting than that, please notice this, church. I think even more impressive is the fact that Jesus did not shift. He did not change through any of this. At every stage, no matter how they received him or even if they rejected him, he always remained the same. No wonder the Hebrews writer says in chapter 13, verse 8 of his book, Jesus Christ, the same, yesterday, today, and forever. The adoration of the crowd, the rejection of the crowd did not change Jesus. He was always the same, always the same character, always the same message. 
Early on, when the crowds had stood in awe of him, he reacted with compassion and honesty. Notice his compassionate spirit, for example. Mark 1.31, so he went out to her and took her hand and helped her up. Verse 34, chapter 1, Jesus healed many who had various diseases. Chapter 1, verse 41, filled with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Just one more. Chapter 3, verse 10, those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. The misery around Jesus just ignited his compassion. Never once did Jesus say, I wish these people would go away and leave me alone. Every time, even when it was not convenient for him, even when he was tired, the Bible says Jesus always responded to them with compassion, resulting in that tremendous ministry of healing that you can read about in the gospel records. How impressive to see someone to actually acknowledge and to address their sickness and their illness and their problems rather than just to ignore them. But equally impressive was his honesty. Listen to these Bible verses. Chapter 1, verse 22 of Mark says, He taught them as one who had authority. Don't miss that. While he is healing them, healing their bodies, he's also giving them something for the spiritual side of man, for their eternal souls. Chapter 2, 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick as he's explaining why he's spending most of his time with people who had needs. Chapter 2, 17, Chapter 2, verse 22, rather. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Chapter 335. Whoever does God's will is my brother and mother and sister. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Chapter 4, 9. Consider carefully what you hear. Chapter 4, verse 24 is the lesson we looked at last month. All this time, Jesus is being consistently honest and forthcoming. What you saw with Jesus was exactly what you got. And what you saw of Jesus in Cana is what you would see with, of Jesus in, in Jerusalem. He, he confronted people with their need for change. And that wasn't easy. He challenged them to live a holy life. Wherever he went, whatever occasion that he had to communicate with the people, he challenged them to live a better life. And his compassion gave credibility to that kind of straightforward message. And yet, as we've seen, stage one didn't last very long. When the crowd shifted to stage two, I think it's important for us to notice that Jesus did not shift with them. He extended, he continued to extend his compassion and his honesty and his sincere message. When the 5,000, for example, that we mentioned a moment ago put political pressure on Jesus in Mark chapter 6 as well as in John chapter 6, the Bible says it made, it made him angry. How would you feel if you were in Jesus' shoes at that moment? What happens to your compassion level when you get angry? I don't know about you, but it kind of goes out the window with me. It's hard to be compassionate and angry at the same time. And the Bible says Jesus was angry. But he also recognized that the 5,000 were hungry. And so with ongoing compassion, the Bible says Jesus fed them. He gave them what they needed and not what they deserved. Listen to Mark chapter 6, 41 and 42, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves and then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all and they all ate and were satisfied. Besides the miraculous dimension of what we've just read, think about the compassion that that represents. Among the crowd, Jesus said, it doesn't matter whether it's one person or a thousand people. It doesn't matter if it's five or five thousand. Here's what people need, and I'm going to give them what they need. I'm still telling you today, folks, that that's what Jesus does for us. Come unto me, all you that labor 
and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest is the promise that he still gives to people in 2019. And aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that Jesus is still in the healing business? That he's still in the compassionate business? That he's still in the, this is the word incarnate business? That he still wants every one of us to be saved and come into a knowledge of the truth, Paul told Timothy in his second letter. In addition to that, Jesus constantly maintained the honesty of his message. He not only fed the 5,000, he also taught them. What I'm saying is he fed them physically, but he also fed them spiritually because he saw that that was the greater need. And that's where we are today, isn't it? There are people that come by this church building or call our office who have physical material needs who many times never for the first moment consider the fact that they also have greater spiritual needs And the real test, I think, of God's people is to be able to meet both. Jesus' teaching was forceful. Listen to what John writes. This is John 6, verses 26 and 27. Jesus said, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs. We read this a moment ago, but because you ate the loaves and you had their fill. And then in the next verse, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. In other words, he was getting them to look beyond the plate that was in front of them. He was trying to get them to envision the fact that they were really dual people, that they, they were physical people with physical needs. Everybody gets hungry. There's nothing wrong with that. And he never criticized them for being hungry. But he said, I want you to know that there is a spiritual side to you that goes beyond the food that is on, in the plate in front of you, and I want you to look at that spiritual side. This is a hard teaching, and who can accept it? John 6, verse 60 says, and then verse 66 contains these sad words. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You see, when the crowd shifted that third time, Jesus must have found it especially difficult to maintain that level of compassion because the crowd had begun to pull away those that were closest to him. Did you hear what I just said? The crowd had begun to pull away those that were closest to Jesus. Some of his closest disciples, for example, Mark 14, 43, this comes as no surprise to anyone. Judas, one of the 12, appeared, and with him was a crowd. No surprise. Think the crowd had an influence on Judas' thinking? I think so, too. The atmosphere was thick with betrayal. Peter reacted with violence and then later on with cowardice and denying Jesus, according to Mark chapter 14. But with characteristic compassion, Jesus healed the man that Peter had wounded, according to Luke twenty-two fifty-one. In spite of the betrayal and the violence, Jesus was still, was still serving people. He was still watching out for their best interest. And he gave them not only compassion, but he gave them honesty. Mark 14, 48 and 49, I'm leading, am I leading a rebellion? He said, every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. The irony of the fact that Jesus was rubbing elbows with him every day and yet they came in the garden and they arrested him like he was a common criminal. Even at the end of his life, when that cry of crucify him came up, Jesus consistently offered compassion and honesty. Even while he was hanging on the cross that you and I just commemorated when we gathered around this table. The Bible says that he said things like, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. I don't know about you, but I'm blown away by that. 
that Jesus would, would look at the very people who had nailed him to that old rugged cross and say, Father, I hope that you do not hold this against them. They don't know what they're doing. And to the penitent thief, he said to that man, Today you will be with me in paradise. Three quick takeaways, and then the lesson is yours. Because Jesus encounters with crowds, I think, present those of us who are Christians today with, with three important lessons. Lesson number one, in personal faith, do not, do not compromise your values. No crowd could ever compromise Jesus' values. But I have to wonder, what size crowd does it take to compromise yours? Or maybe what kind of crowd upsets your faith? I'm asking, have you found yourself doing things in a crowd that you would never consider doing alone? So in lesson number one, in personal faith, don't compromise your values. Lesson number two, in ministry, I believe we need to do what Jesus did, focus on the individual. Have you ever tried to listen to a crowd? Like in a ball game or something? I, the first time I ever went to a ball game that had almost 100,000 people in the stands, that was a new experience to me because since it was the first time, that makes sense, Randy. Thank you. It was scary. I mean, when the roar of the crowd went up, I had to stop and look around to see what, what was making that din, that cacophony of noise. It was overwhelming. But I'm wondering, when you're in a crowd like that, even in a smaller crowd, what is it do you hear? Do you hear the, the rumble and the roar of the crowd? Or are you able to pick out the individual voices? Jesus had a remarkable ability to hear individual voices. He heard their hunger. He heard their distress. He heard their moods. He heard their fears. He did not seek the crowds. He always sought the individuals in crowds. And folks, if we're going to win the world to Christ, it's going to be one person at a time. Lesson number three, refuse a conglomerate religion. The values of a crowd are formed by compromise almost without exception. Everyone gives in to everyone else in the crowd until a conglomerate conviction is formed in which beliefs and values are determined pretty much by committee vote. Let's put our finger in the air, see which way the wind is blowing, and then I'll decide which way I want to vote is what happens in most crowds. I think it's really significant that in the New Testament, the church is never, ever, not once referred to as a crowd, and that's because we aren't. We are God's people, and there's certainly more than one of us. But folks, we are not a crowd. It is what you and I are a part of is not a conglomerate religion. The church is called a body. We are more than an organization. We are more like an organism because each individual receives his or her convictions and values and beliefs from a common source, and that is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. We do not determine what we're going to believe on Monday by which way the wind of popularity is blowing on Sunday. You and I as God's people have a conviction that is born of the words of Jesus that he spoke 2,000 years ago that still resides and resonates in the hearts of those of us who are believers today. It's certainly true that we stand as individuals before our God, but we also stand with one another as members of his one body, and I thank God that he allowed us to do that, to be a part of his church, his ecclesia, his called out ones. So I'm just saying we need to continually be asking ourselves, what are we listening to in the world? Is it the voice of the crowd? Are we listening to the majority vote? Or is it to the single authoritative voice of Jesus, who is in fact Lord of Lords? 
We also need to ask what we're looking at and focusing on. Is it the 7.5 billion people on the planet? Or are we looking for individual opportunities to spread the word of salvation one person at a time? And then how do we see ourselves? That's the last question I want to ask. Do we assume that in judgment we'll just get lost in the crowd? Think about all the people who live on this planet right now, 7.5 billion thereabouts. And then all the people who've ever lived since the beginning of time, those are the people that are going to be in judgment. Are we just going to get lost in the crowd or do we believe scripture? Romans fourteen twelve. So then every man will give an account of himself before God. Do you realize that when we stand before the judgment bar of God, And as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.10, and we receive the things bundled in our bodies according to that which we've done, whether it be good or bad, we're going to be judged as if we were the only person who ever lived. So that's why I'm asking you this morning, are you right with God? And if you're not, there is nothing more important that you can do than get right. Allow your faith to move and motivate you to repent of all of your past sins, the way that you've lived along with the determination that you're going to live the way God would have you to live from now on. Confess the sweet name of Jesus as God's Son and be baptized to have all of your past sins washed away and do it now while we stand and while we sing.